Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemonk Podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're actually doing our first ever bonus episode, two episodes in one week, this time just picking up where we left off in our last conversation about congenital causes of hemolytic anemia. We were so excited, we couldn't contain ourselves into one episode, and so we decided, hey, why not make it two? I want to be clear that Ronak and Dan were very excited, and I was saying, I don't know how many people are going to listen to this episode, so let's just call it a bonus, but no, truly, this is a great episode that we have a lot of really good content. I didn't write any of it. I'm not taking any credit for any of this. I'm just going to stay out of this conversation. I'll, I'll moderate and, and let these guys kind of teach our listeners all of this stuff. It's really important to know. It's very helpful when you see these patients because you will come across congenital hemolytic anemia patients. So it's good to hear this every once in a while. Anytime you're talking about proteins, they didn't bother to name anything beyond band three or protein 4.2. You know, you're really getting into the weeds. So I'm excited. Let's not keep our listeners waiting. Let's roll that show. Guys, so last time we started our conversation all about congenital hemolytic anemias, well, we did do a quick refresher of the DAT. We talked about the elution screen. We introduced the concept of G6PD deficiency being one of the congenital causes of hemolytic anemia. Today, I think we should pick up where we left off. There's a lot of other, albeit relatively rare causes of congenital hemolytic anemia, but amongst the rare causes, there are still ones that are more common. And so these are things that you may see in clinical practice, but at the very least may show up on your board exam. So it's probably important for us to know. Dan, I was wondering if you have a good framework for how you sort of keep all of these inherited hemolytic anemias straight in your head. Like you said, even if these are rare in clinical practice, the one place they're not rare is on board exams. So it's important to keep in mind and you want to be able to catch them when you do see them in clinical practice. I tend to try and divide these congenital problems, the red cell, it's like what part of the cell they're affecting. And there's a lot that can go wrong, even though red cells are relatively simple cells compared to, say, a neuron or something. There's still a lot of components to each one, and I try and group these into a big buckets. So hemoglobin, a major component of red cells. You can have a hemoglobinopathy, things like sickle cell disease or thalassemias, larger topics that are going to get their own episode in the future. So we're not going to dive too much into the hemoglobinopathies today. Then I think about membrane disorders. So again, another major component of the cell. And that includes the cytoskeleton that supports the membrane. This is either a structural issue related to those cytoskeletal proteins or something related to the channels embedded in the membrane that help regulate ionic content of the cell, hydration of the cell, that sort of thing. And then the last big bucket is enzyme disorders. So that's the category into which G6PD falls, but there are a lot of other enzymes in the cell that are really important for its metabolism and its function. There are some more rare deficiencies in these enzymes that also cause chronic hemolysis. Got it. That was a really good framework, Dan. When we talked about our case last week, we had a guy postoperatively dropped his counts, had jaundice, had all these things, started on a new med, and the smear was relatively unremarkable. We'd said, okay, this patient likely has G6PD deficiency, supportive care, everything was great. But that doesn't always happen. So we have some of these patients that have chronic hemolysis, low levels of hemolysis, and they see you in hematology clinics. So let's start with that framework of membrane disorders. So how do we think about these membrane disorders? 
So we should always remember what would Dan Housrath do, and the answer to what Dan Housrath would do in almost any situation is check a peripheral smear. And I think remembering a peripheral smear as we're trying to undergo this process is so huge because it helps us better understand where do we start from, right? There are so many different types of congenital causes, but you need some guidance as to which avenue you go first. So. If on your peripheral smear, let's say you see lots of spherocytes. So remember, a spherocyte is a red blood cell that has lost its biconcave shape. It looks more spherical and it loses that central pallor. If you see lots of spherocytes, you are going to be suspicious that they may have something called hereditary spherocytosis. And this is the most common hereditary hemolytic anemia in people of North European descent. And Renak, really briefly there... We all, I just want to remind our listeners that spherocytosis is also common in autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So we're talking about the DAT negative setting. Vivek, that's a great point. And so that's why it's important to realize that there are actually a lot of different reasons people can have spherocytes. But what is going to be different in patients with a hereditary cause is that when you look at their smear, the majority of the cells are going to be spherocytes with very few, if any, normal red blood cells, as opposed to somebody with like a warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia, where they will have primarily normal appearing red blood cells, and every so often you'll appreciate a spherocyte. So that is the difference. And that's why you got to get really good at looking at peripheral smears to pick up on that. The other big thing that comes up, especially on testing all the time, is the inheritance pattern of this disease. So hereditary spherocytosis is primarily an autosomal dominant disorder. However, there are about 25% of cases that are inherited in a non-dominant fashion, and these are mainly going to be due to de novo mutations. The other big thing that comes up is what is the underlying problem? And there's a really good graphic that we found in one of the hematology textbooks that shows the anatomy, if you will, of the erythrocyte membrane. I like to think of hereditary spherocytosis as hereditary spherocytosis because it is the vertical attachments and interactions that are messed up. So this is because of mutations in a variety of different proteins. There's scaffolding proteins like alpha and beta spectrin, which sort of look like Twizzlers that sort of form the scaffolding underneath the membrane. There's another important protein called ankrin and also proteins band 3 and 4.2. And Basically, when you look at the image, you'll see that their job is to sort of hold the outer membrane and attach it to those spectrin molecules. This begs the question of what is actually the problem here, right? So what? The cells are misshapen. Why does that result in hemolysis? And it's actually because you have an otherwise healthy spleen, right? So the spleen is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It just so happens that these cells are misshapen. So remember in the spleen, the red blood cells pass through the area called the cords. This area is small, it's acidic, it's lined with macrophages. So these misshapen red blood cells basically get eaten up by the macrophages, and that's what sort of triggers this hemolytic process. There's this other phenomenon called conditioning, where the splenic environment accelerates membrane loss and spherocyte formation, and this also further makes red blood cells prone to hemolysis. So in very severe cases of hemolytic anemia caused from hereditary spherocytosis, splenectomy can be used. And the idea here is that you're increasing the lifespan of the red blood cell. Remember though, you're removing the reason that the cells are cleared, but the actual red blood cell itself is not going to change and, and go back to a normal shape because of the intrinsic problem with the red blood cell. That was a great explanation, Renek. And honestly, for me, 
to this day, board certified hematologist here. I didn't know why this happened in the spleen. So that's cool to know. And I think this is really good for our listeners to hear an explanation of this and to read it in our show notes and and learn from these guys here. So I want to throw it over to Dan now. So again, we're talking about this hereditary spherocytosis patients. How do we think about laboratory testing in these patients and how do we treat them? So lab findings in hereditary spherocytosis are going to include some degree of anemia, usually pretty mild anemia in the case of HS. You're going to have a baseline reticulocytosis because their cells just don't live as long as normal red cells as people who don't have hereditary spherocytosis. So their body's going to need to pump out more cells to compensate for that. One thing that I really love about this condition is that you end up having to pay attention to something you rarely have to pay attention to, which is the MCHC, the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. You're thinking about this, these cells are progressively losing pieces of their membrane, it's essentially an accelerated membrane aging process. They're becoming more and more spherical, more and more densely packed. And so you have the same amount of hemoglobin being squished into a smaller package. So the hemoglobin concentration is high in this condition. You also see an increased RDW, again, thinking about this accelerated aging process, usually a normal MCV and some degree of baseline hyperbilirubinemia. You can make the diagnosis definitively with functional testing. There's various iterations of the osmotic fragility test. The idea is that these cells, because again, they're squishing a lot of hemoglobin into a small package, are pretty sensitive to changes in the ionic concentration of their environment. It's one of the things that can lead to increased hemolysis in these patients is big osmotic shifts. And so you can prove that on a test that basically exposes cells to an increasingly hypotonic solutions and seeing when they lice compared to control red cells. There's some other more esoteric tests out there as well, including something called the ESN5 malleamide test or EMA test using flow cytometry. And these days, of course, we have molecular studies that can demonstrate, okay, yeah, this person has a genetic defect in band three or one of these other membrane complex proteins that holds the cytoskeleton to the membrane. That often is the easiest way to do it. And Dan, I wanted to make one comment to what you said there with this osmotic fragility test. That makes so much sense. Such a high concentration of this hemoglobin within the cell. That's why your MCHC is high. So a ton of water enters it in quickly and then it just explodes. That makes sense compared to a normal cell that has not as big of a concentration. And what about the treatment for these patients? Are we doing a splenectomy in everybody? How do we think about treating them? So treatment is largely based on how severe their disease is, which makes sense, right? It's graded from mild to severe. Mild patients, usually it's just something we pick up incidentally. They maybe have a slightly lower than normal hemoglobin, maybe even just towards the lower end of the normal range. And you look at a peripheral smear for one reason or another, and it's just a full field of spherocytes. That's honestly the most common that I've seen. All patients, regardless of kind of how severe or not severe, are going to benefit from being on a little bit of folic acid. Remember, they have a chronic reticulocytosis. They're chronically making lots and lots of red blood cells. So you just got to give their body the tools that it needs to do so. For folks that have more severe disease who are really chronically peritransfusion or having a hemoglobin that's low enough that it's affecting their quality of life, you can think about splenectomy. I always feel bad about this because, again, it's not the spleen's fault. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's just a sort of an innocent bystander in all of this. But because it is integral in, in the pathogenesis of this disease, you can take it out. It's a high-risk procedure. It is associated with a lifelong risk for infection from encapsulated bacteria, a lifelong immunocompromised state. So it really is reserved for the most severe cases. That was a great overview on that. And like Ronick said, spherocytosis, like vero, right? Vertical. So vertical interactions. 
So let's talk about a different type of membranopathy. So we've gotten through hereditary spherocytosis with the vertical interactions, spherocytosis. Another shape that we think about is hereditary elliptocytosis. Again, I know nothing about this topic, so let's talk about that. Rona, can you walk us through some pearls for hereditary elliptocytosis? As the name suggests, here the cells are going to be more elliptical in shape. They're going to be more oblong than your basic RBC morphology. So the fundamental issue here, in contrast to hereditary spherocytosis, is that your horizontal interactions are actually the proteins that are problematic here. Interestingly, this is also can be mutations in the alpha and beta spectrin, which could have been culprits in hereditary spherocytosis, but they're different mutations. So nonetheless, alpha and beta spectrin can be a problem. And the hereditary elliptocytosis mutations prevent the formation of the alpha-beta spectrin tetramer. And there are other causes that can happen as well, but this is probably the most common one. And we typically think of HE as broken up into three different subtypes. There's your common HE, and these are going to be patients that are typically asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic like when they're sick, for instance. And more or less, we find a profound number of these abnormal cells in circulation somewhat incidentally. You have your hemolytic HE group, which usually present with moderate to severe symptomatic disease. And these patients typically have a very large spleen given their chronic hemolysis. And then there's this rare subset that is sort of a subset of hemolytic HE is hereditary pyropoikilocytosis, a mouthful. And basically, the theme here is that when you look at their cells under the microscope, it looks almost analogous to what someone that had a thermal burn will look like. The shape and sizes of the cells are sort of all over the place, and this basically creates a moderate to severe hemolytic anemia. Great. And I never knew what pyropoikilocytosis is, and I still probably don't understand it well enough, but actually I do now because it makes so much sense that that's what it is. It's not overly complicated, and I always was just afraid of what this meant, and it just didn't make sense to me. So this is great. So Dan, can you walk us through the diagnosis and treatment and any other pearls you have for what Ronick said? So the diagnosis can usually be made just by looking at the smear. You'll see a pretty much full field of these elliptical-shaped cells. Remember, they're cytoskeleton is not as resilient, not as stable. And so they kind of just take on the shape of the capillaries that they're passing through. And you'll end up seeing a mild anemia, typically, elevated LDH and bilirubin, again, thinking about this as being chronic hemolysis. And in sort of the more severe variants of hereditary lipocytosis, including hereditary pyropoikilocytosis, the MCV will be pretty small, generally, just because there are so many fragmented cells that are getting counted there. HPP, I also do think of as just kind of being the opposite in a lot of ways from the rest of the HE category. It's autosomal recessive instead of autosomal dominant. It's much more severe and phenotype and all that. In terms of osmotic fragility, it will be normal in the non-hemolytic HE variants, but increased in the hemolytic types. And once again, our friend genetic testing comes into play here. It really does make a lot of these diagnoses much less tricky and much less esoteric than they used to be. We can kind of send off genetic testing to look for some of the common defects in these cytoskeletal proteins. Once again, treatment, it's going to depend largely on the severity of disease. Start your patient on folic acid to help support their body making more new blood cells. Your HPP, some of the more severe variants, may require transfusions from time to time, depending on sort of flares or increases in hemolysis. And in the most severe cases, again, splenectomy may have a role for long-term management. I also want to give a quick shout out to one other condition, South Asian ovalocytosis, just because that's something you may see on boards. 
This is where it's actually kind of the opposite of a lot of these conditions in that it, it makes the cells a little bit stronger, if anything. The band three interaction with anchorin tends to be stronger. And so they have decreased osmotic fragility and all that. The big buzzword that you'll hear is spoon-shaped ovalocytes. It kind of looks like a weird soup spoon. We'll include a picture of it from the image bank in our show notes. And once you see it, you'll kind of remember what it looks like. And that's the diagnosis there. Again, a really mild hemolytic condition. This was all great. And, you know, remember hereditary spherocytosis vertical, zero, autosomal dominant inheritance pattern for the most part. We have hereditary elliptocytosis. There's these subtypes. It can be asymptomatic, subclinical, kind of incidentally found. You can have a hemolytic form and you can have a more severe hereditary pyropachylocytosis. Those are also autosomal dominant, except for the more uncommon one, which is that pyropachylocytosis, which is autosomal recessive. So recessively inherited, less common, makes complete sense. So we also mentioned things about red blood cell dehydration in, in the beginning when we're talking about membrane disorders. So essentially, this is due to abnormalities in the sodium-potassium pumps on the surface. What exactly is the deal going on here? I still don't understand these membranopathies well. So every now and then, you'll look at a smear and you see these things called stomatocytes, which are described in the literature to be mouth-shaped, but honestly, I think they look more like coffee beans, and I think that's easier to think about. Essentially, what these are are abnormal sodium-potassium pumps that aren't working quite right, and so this results in misshapen red blood cells. So the first one to know is hydrocytosis. So as the name suggests, the cells are overhydrated. So these patients will have a really big MCV, like 110 to 150. I don't think I've ever seen anybody with an MCV of 150, but you may see it in this condition. And a low MCHC. So remember, in this case, there's a ton of water. So you're diluting out that hemoglobin as opposed to what we were talking about before. So these large cells are large because there's a lot of water inside. And the big takeaway here is that it is expressed in in an autosomal dominant fashion, though, however, the penetrance is quite variable. Dan, do you want to go to the other one? Sure. So the opposite of hydrocytosis is xerocytosis or dry cells. And in this case, it causes basically red cell dehydration because they're contracted down and don't have as much water. Their MCHC will be up and their MCV will be low. And generally osmotic fragility is actually decreased just because they're not losing membrane. They have more membrane with less stuff in it. So they're less sensitive to shifts in, in the osmotic gradient. One of the most common mutations that's responsible for this is a mutation in piezo one and it causes an autosomal dominant hemolytic anemia. Although most of our congenital hemolytic conditions can be improved with splenectomy, particularly in the case of piezo one mutated hereditary xerocytosis, it's not a good idea generally. The risk of thrombosis is quite high after splenectomy for one reason or another. So when you see somatocytosis, particularly the xerocytosis variant of it, that's one of the things where you really don't want to be reaching for splenectomy in these patients. All right, that's great. So we have another category here, the sodium potassium pump issues, either the cells are overhydrated or underhydrated. And again, like Dan said, we the splenectomy, whether to do that or not, it's not a simple answer. Just take everybody's spleen out, right? There are downstream consequences. Most of these things are inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, except that rare hereditary pyropachylocytosis. So it's something to know as you think about these board exams and things like that. So now let's switch gears to enzyme deficiencies. So there are a lot of very rare causes. So how about we focus on the main ones that we're likely to see, which is G6PD deficiency and 
PK deficiency. So can one of you guys start out with maybe, we talked about G6PD last week, a brief overview of that, and then we'll move into PK deficiency. So G6PD, as we talked about just a couple of days ago, it affects a huge number of folks, an estimated 400 million worldwide. It was thought to be an adaptation to malaria. And classically, in, you know, in med school, we hear about favism or sensitivity to fava beans causing hemolytic crises. Basically, what it boils down to is when you put the red cell under certain types of oxidative stress, they need to rely more heavily on this hexose monophosphate shunt for their energy supply. And uh, G6PD deficiency, that enzyme, when it's not working well, it prevents the cell from using that alternate pathway. Therefore, there are these intermittent crises where folks will have hemolysis. There's a huge spectrum of mutations ranging from mild deficiency and mild defects in enzyme activity to very severe. The most severe will just have chronic hemolysis like we're seeing in some of these other congenital hemolytic anemias. But by and large, it's folks that have intermittent hemolysis when they're put under certain types of stress. The important thing to remember about its inheritance is that generally speaking, these are excellent conditions. So we're more likely to see it in males, but you can also see it in females, both from skewed lionization or inheriting multiple copies, compound heterozygosity and that sort of thing. And generally speaking, functional testing, not particularly useful in the acute setting for these folks. Genetic testing has been a boon for diagnosing these conditions accurately. And if you really want to know if somebody's enzymes are abnormal, you need to get them when they're not having a hemolytic crisis, because if they're pumping out reticulocytes with fresh G6PD enzyme, it's going to be working the best that it's going to ever be working for them. So you may have false negative testing in the acute setting. All right. That was a great recap. And so I just want to remember, most of these are autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, except hereditary pyropiculocytosis, autosomal recessive, G6PD X-linked. And now the last one we're going to talk about, which is also autosomal recessive, more rare, is pyruvate kinase deficiency. So Rona, can you tell us a little bit about pyruvate kinase deficiency? Of course. And PK deficiency, for some reason, also likes to show up on exams, even though it's estimated to occur in about 1 in 20,000 Caucasians. But of all of the glycolytic and nucleotide enzymopathies, this is going to be your most common and most well-studied. So as Vivek said, it's an autosomal recessive disorder. This is in contrast to most of these enzymopathies that are autosomal dominant in nature. And recall that pyruvate kinase is involved in glycolysis. And I find this really fascinating. There's about 300 different mutations in PK that can occur. And while we used to think that all these mutations led to decreased PK for production, we now actually know that there are differences in enzyme function between these different types. Rarely, patients are going to be homozygous. Rather, instead, they're more likely to be compound heterozygotes that then result in symptomatic PK deficiency. So patients that have one normal copy of PK are rarely going to be symptomatic because the other copy will make up for it. The clinical presentation is quite variable. It can range from as severe as high drops fatalis and neonatal jaundice in the neonatal period to as much as patients presenting in adulthood with variable presentations. So the way that we diagnose this is going to be, again, a patient that has anemia, but this can be quite variable. The smear will often have cells of varying sizes and shapes, and there's going to be a high reticulocyte count as we've been seeing with many of these hemolytic diseases, and that's because the body's trying to compensate. The PK enzyme activity can be checked if this is suspected, but 
The one thing to know is that you need to make sure that the leukocytes are depleted in this uh, assay because leukocytes intrinsically have a lot of PK activity. They have a PK isomer that's not affected by this mutation. And so you could get a false positive if those white cells are still in circulation. And then Dan, there's been a lot of recent interest, if you want to call it that, in this very small subset of people that study this disease because of some new drugs that have recently come out. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how we treat patients with PK deficiency? Sure. Up until very recently, we talked about this the same way we've been talking about a lot of these hereditary hemolytic anemias, which is supportive care, basically monitoring patients for intermittent flares and hemolysis in the worst sort of presentations of this disease, considering splenectomy, which can help decrease the amount of hemolysis that happens in these crises. And in very severe cases, even considering something like a stem cell transplant to basically give them cells that no longer lack this PK enzyme. In 2022, the FDA approved a drug called midapivat. It's this oral small molecule allosteric activator slash stabilizer of the red cell isoform of pyruvate kinase. And they did so based on the results of a couple of these single arm studies. And again, like thinking about the rarity of these conditions, one of the studies included 27 patients, and that was activate-T. And there was another study that included 52 patients. In this activate study, the 27 patients that were included were all transfusion dependent, so having a pretty serious form of this condition. The primary endpoint was a reduction in burden of transfusions by greater than a third. 10 of the 27 patients, 37% of the patients, did meet that goal of reducing transfusions by a third, and that met the threshold for statistical significance, and so a positive result showing efficacy here. The study with 52 patients was composed of patients who are not transfusion dependent. And this was looking more at safety, the safety profile, side effects. And there was a secondary endpoint as well that was changes in hemoglobin and changes in hemolytic markers. In terms of that secondary endpoint, 26, so half of the patients involved, had an increase of at least one gram per deciliter in their hemoglobin. Among these patients, all of them showed improvement in their hemolytic markers. So decreased reticulocyte counts, decreased indirect bilirubin, decreased LDH, increased haptoglobin. We'll link those studies in, in our show notes, the papers uh, related to those studies. It's just really exciting that we have a drug now in this space where we really didn't have any targeted therapeutic options before. Interestingly enough, we're now looking at metapivat in a variety of other conditions that you wouldn't necessarily think would benefit from PK stabilization, including MDS and some other sort of chronic anemias. So stay tuned. This drug is probably going to have more roles in the future, but for right now, an exciting new option for PK deficiency. There are a ton of other enzyme deficiencies as well. You can imagine there's more than just a couple of things going on inside of a red cell. We're not going to dive into them because they're even more rare. And we will have a table in our show notes kind of going through some of the big ones to know for boards. In general, most of these deficiencies are going to be autosomal recessive. Haploinsufficiency is not enough to bring out a phenotype with most of these enzymes, with the exception of phosphoglycerate kinase deficiency, which is X-linked, so that has a different inheritance pattern, and adenosine deaminase deficiency, which is autosomal dominant, sort of nucleotide metabolism-related things. So that's a pretty broad overview, but covering the major two enzyme deficiencies, PK deficiency and G6PD. I thought this was a great discussion. I, I learned a lot. Listeners, check out our show notes. Listen to this. Listen to s whichever segment you want to. Listen to it again. There, there's a lot of good pearls here. 
And these were always so complicated to me, but it's really not that hard. Look at our show notes because we really break this down for you and give you just a way to understand rather than try to rote memorize. Because if you wrote memorize it, it ain't going to work. You're going to forget it. You have to understand it. That's the only way to really keep this and commit this to memory, especially when, even if it's just for a board exam. But this is good. I'm so glad we did this today. Thanks for you guys doing this episode. I did nothing. So this was great. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners? I just want to apologize to everybody for having to bring up biochem. I, I, I know that that is something that we hoped that we would never, ever, ever see again, but here we are. So I'm sure Dr. Lee, my biochem teacher in uh, our professor in medical school is hopefully giving me a thumbs up. Yeah, you know, in a way, it's somewhat reassuring that there is a reason that they make us learn all this stuff, even if <laughs> the very slim minority of med students ends up becoming benign hematologist that cares about this. But hey, you learned it for a reason. And that will be the last we'll ever talk about biochemistry. So we'll see everybody next week when we get into warm autoimmune hemolytic anemias. Everybody take care. See you later. Peace.